0: It's your search history is being used against you in the rest of the web on those other advertising profiles as you kind of browse the web and apps. So you're using your search history to have follow ads around you on the rest of the internet. And so you can avoid that, it has nothing to do with search results. You can just use DuckDuckGo and not have that creepy ad problem.
1: Welcome to the stock podcast, my name is Nate Abercrombie, and I'm the host of the investing podcast that delivers interviews with CEOs and CFOs of, well, primarily public companies. But every once in a while, I'm really fortunate to get a private company on the podcast. And in this episode, I really can't say how excited I am to have Gabriel Weinberg on the program. Gabriel is the founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo, which is a privacy-focused search engine. But if you're like me and when you hear the name DuckDuckGo, you probably did a double take. It's a strange name, but so is Google. Yeah, that's right. I'm comparing this company to Google because, well, DuckDuckGo is one of Google's biggest competitors. You might be scratching your head at that statement because, well, you probably didn't think that Google had any competitors. That in and of itself is a strange concept. In the free market capitalist system that exists in the United States, monopolies aren't allowed unless you're a utility and it makes economic sense but in the case of search it just doesn't make sense but it's one of those strange things that we just don't think about as a society i'll wager that even the most die-hard free market capitalist uses google search but doesn't realize that they're supporting a monopoly by doing so i mean think about it approximately 90 percent of internet search queries go through google as a society the vast majority of us use google almost, and if not exclusively, for online discovery. Assume for a moment that your search results aren't exactly what you're actually searching for, but rather those results are tailored by your search history or your location. Well, DuckDuckGo doesn't do any of that. You're completely anonymous on DuckDuckGo. Just to summarize, the interview covers a lot of different topics like data privacy, the history of search, how Google became the behemoth that it is, Gabriel's background, and some really interesting stuff on his company, DuckDuckGo. But before we get to those topics, we do talk about his book, Super Thinking. If anyone out there is interested in learning how to become a better decision maker and applying something called mental models to your thought process, this book is perfect for you. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Gabriel Weinberg, author of Super Thinking and CEO of DuckDuckGo. Gabriel Weinberg, thank you so very much for coming on to the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you and, and learn more about you, your book, and your business. My pleasure. All of my interviews start off with my guest's background. So would you mind just sharing whatever you'd like to share about your background?
0: Sure. I am so I'm the CEO and founder of DuckTuckGo. And before that, I founded a few other internet companies. I've basically been doing this my whole post-educational career since about 2000. I went, before that, I went to MIT I ha- for undergrad and grad. I have a uh, undergrad in physics, grad in technology and policy. And I, before that, you know, is less relevant, but I grew up in Atlanta for what it's worth, born in DC.
1: I'd love to talk about your your, your book first. And, and I, I can't say thanks enough for sending that my way. I, I absolutely love that book. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I've read books from you know, behavioral like, uh, economists, and uh, you Kahneman, know, and Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. I think you mentioned that book a couple of times yep. in, in your book. But for me, I always feel like they're very dry, and some of the examples are there's just way too much discussion around one specific example. And what I loved about your book was that it, it was just it, here's a mental model. Bang! Here's 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 an example, and then you 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 weave it into a a, a larger concept that I, I think was just really well done, and I I loved reading this book, and I, I think that the concept of mental models though isn't something that is extremely common. So, if you wouldn't mind, just start off talking about what a mental model is and why you wanted to write this book.
0: Yeah, sure. So. A mental model is really just a fancy word for concept, <laughs> um, <laughs> concept of the world. And so, in the introduction, um, we explain it um, why they're useful and how it works with the with addition and subtraction and multiplication. Right. So, when you grow up in school, you learn arithmetic and you start out with addition, and that's really a mental model of how to combine numbers to make them more. You know, yeah. Um, and it turns out most of the rest of arithmetic is based also off of addition. So multiplication is just repeated addition. Subtraction is negative addition. Division is repeated subtraction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so what you end up doing is you learn these more abstract concepts, which you could call arithmetic mental models that help you do math faster. And so when you know multiplication, for example, you, once you know that and you have a calculator, you're never going to do, a big multiplication problem via addition. Like if you have 43 times 17 you're not going to be like 43 plus 43 plus 43 plus 43, you forty-three. You're going to do just 43 times 17. And so what that illustrates is once you have the concept of multiplication you can just do things faster. You can think faster, you can reason faster, you can do math faster in this case. So there are concepts everywhere, right? Every discipline finance has tons of them. But then there are some concepts that are generally helpful beyond their discipline. They're useful for general decision-making and thinking, uh, which is why we call the book Super Thinking. And if you know these mental models, you can become what we term kind of a super thinker. An example of that is that we also use in introduction is critical mass. So this is a concept from physics, and it's like you need a certain amount of mass to make a nuclear bomb or reactor or explosion, and that's very useful in nuclear physics and World War II and all that kind of stuff. But it's also very useful outside of physics. So a um, product, like if you're making a product, it can have critical mass. If you, a party can have critical mass, so you need to make it a real party. In finance, you know, a stock can have a critical mass of investors or else it can face problems. And what you know from that concept, if you know critical mass, you can then reason about it much more effectively because you know that once it reaches a certain threshold, something different is going to happen once... It reaches their critical mass, you can start to ask higher level questions like, how can I reach critical mass faster? Or what can I do? What's going to happen really when we hit it? And so some of these concepts are extremely useful if you know them to reason about problems quicker and better. And what I determined was over many years, and it's not just me, there's there's a the whole mental model community, is that if you want to be a really good decision maker, you need to know all the best concepts from all the best disciplines. And what I set out to do in this book is enumerate all of them. Now, you know, my list might be slightly different from somebody else's list, but it's pretty comprehensive. There's about 300 in the book. And that sounds pretty overwhelming. But um, as you noted, we try to keep it really short and sweet and they're very interrelated. And so we uh, weave them into nine thematic chapters. Um, We can talk about what some of those are that make it relatively easy to digest. But at the end of it, we hope that you kind of have all these named concepts at your disposal that'll just help you think better and make better decisions.
1: What, what was the easiest thematic concept to write? And what was the most difficult one to, to write?
0: So, this whole book was exceptionally long and hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what, what really kicked this off was I realized that I had hired a lot of employees and we have a very unique uh, corporate structure and we we're really trying to grow our employees into executives. And I realized that. You know, being an executive is really about making good decisions most of the time. Um, you're not doing as much of the work anymore, you, you really are strategically making decisions. Um, and to make good decisions, I really felt after being in, enveloped in this community and thinking about mental models for a couple decades, that you really need to know all these concepts. So what I did is I made a big list of these concepts, which eventually became a blog post that went viral, which kicked off the book process. But I, I kind of gave it and I still give it to, now I can give the book out, but I, I was giving this list out to all of our employees and said, you know, you should just learn all these concepts. Um, and so that list and blog post, you know, turned into this book. But then when we got to start writing it, I realized that, you know, they were originally organized by discipline and that is not a good way to organize them, <laughs> to really learn them. You want to, you want to organize it by themes. And so the real hard part was figuring out what those themes are because they're these concepts are so interrelated. And so we set out to do that, and that actually took a long time to make an outline. And so, for example, the first chapter is all about biases, all the behavioral economics stuff you were referring to about how you get tripped up with your intuition. The second theme is about unintended consequences. The third is on spending your time wisely and so on. And so to answer your question, we spent the longest on two chapters, <laughs> Uh, which arguably were the hardest. Uh, the first was uh, chapter five, which is around statistics and models around statistics. And that, the problem with that was twofold. One, my wife's a PhD statistician and she didn't want one possible thing error in that chapter of math <laughs> or definitional wrongness or anything because then she'd look really dumb. And so we spent a lot of time getting accurate. And then it's really hard to relate that when, without writing equations or anything to people who have no math background. Yeah. Um, and so we were going back and forth on that for so long because she'd be like, this isn't totally accurate. And I'm like, but that doesn't read. No one's going to understand that if we write it that way. So that one took a long time. The other one that took a long time was is chapter seven, which is about dealing with conflict. And it's got a lot of game theory and, you know, models around, you know, mutually assured destruction and, and all sorts of military things and things like that. And it was just very difficult to weave it into a narrative and keep it under ten thousand words. Yeah, <laughs> and so we we had many revisions of trying to edit that down.
1: That, that was one of my
0: favorites, by the way. But I'm I'm glad because it it's good to know that the time was worth it was well spent.
1: <laughs> and what about the easiest chapter to write?
0: Easiest chapter might have been the bias stuff. Might have yeah. been chapter one, uh, which was our first chapter. And we basically wrote it first. Probably because it was so easy. Yeah. Um, which is about just how your intuition fails you, confirmation bias, all these different things that definitely trip a lot of investors. And I think it was easier because there's like you said originally, there's been a lot of good writing about that over time, you know? And so there was a good set of examples. A lot of the problem with writing this book is we didn't just want to explain a concept. We want to explain how it's useful outside of its discipline. And so get examples. (laughs) in people's personal and professional life that has nothing to do with that. So we go back to like critical mass, you want to use that outside of physics, right? You want to use these economic concepts outside of economics. And so finding those examples and the best ones probably took the longest time in writing this book. But in behavioral economics, there's already a lot of good examples. So it was a little easier.
1: I know that just from listening to some previous interviews that you've had on different podcasts, um, you have what sounds like a really amazing family dynamic and a great relationship with your wife, but doing something like this, you know, can always, you know, you're, you're always maybe there's stress that, that's involved. And I'm just curious whether or not it was very stressful at all, writing a book with your wife.
0: Yeah. I mean, it started off good. Um, and it ended <laughs> good, um, but I'd say the last third was pretty difficult and not that we didn't work well together. I thought this ended up being really great for us. Um, yeah. I'd never really worked with my wife in that capacity before and we had for a bit of background like we um a very close relationship but we walk almost every morning and talk about we we were talking about mental models for years and so we had a lot of fodder for the book already but the main issue was the deadline <laughs> yeah. so and that I also have a full-time job as yeah. <laughs> a founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo. And so, um, when it came down to getting to the deadline, we were not like ready. So at the, the last tail of it, we had a lot of extra work and we have two small kids. And so it was getting into all of our weekends and we wanted to, we could have extended the deadline, but we just kind of wanted to get it done. So we kind of pushed it. And so there was a bunch of stress at the end, just kind of like getting out the door. But in terms of like arguing about anything in particular, we didn't really have much argument. We both just had ideas for the book, and generally, what my wife says is better. Yeah, <laughs> so just kind of went with it.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the same sort of relationship that I have with my wife. Yeah, she she's also the smart one. She's I don't know. I just see just analogies between you and your wife, and I know given your background and you know two degrees at MIT and oh no I'll sh- take that assessment but I'm curious if there were only three or four mental models that I don't you could apply I mean you mentioned that this is something that you apply in your organization if there are only three or four that you that you could apply which three or four mental models would you apply in your organization
0: yeah so there are some that are even higher level concepts that really relate to a lot. But so first of all, one that is not that, that we apply, I think the most and it's somewhat counterintuitive is called forcing function, which some people know, some people not. But just to be clear about what it is, is it's something that really forces you to do something and usually operationalized in organization. That's like a standing meeting or could be like a board meeting or a weekly update you have to write or a one-on-one, which everyone in our company has with somebody with their manager which we call Career Advisor, and what it is is it's a set time that by default you're going to do because it's in your calendar already, and so it forces you to think critically about whatever it is that meeting's about. And if you don't have these forcing functions, you can just go off for long periods of time in the wrong direction, and what the forcing function does is it forces you to really, you know, ask yourself questions like, am I doing this correctly, and maybe get other people involved. So we do that a number of ways. So. Like I mentioned, board meeting, one-on-ones. We also have um, for every, we have a project life cycle that's pretty structured. So we have kickoff calls for every project where you get all the stakeholders involved. We often have for longer projects a mid-mortem. We actually have a the kickoff call we call a pre-mortem, which is asking the question, "Why is this project going to fail?" And then after the project, we have a post-mortem where we say, like, even if the project went well, you know, what can be done better for the next time. And all those things are forcing functions to get us to think critically about some aspect of the products we're doing. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two, I would say probably they go hand in hand with the concept of leverage and opportunity cost. And so in general, you know, leverage is like a physics concept of you can apply a small amount of force to move a big object by using like a fulcrum. Um, But as a, you know, it's obviously a financial concept to use there for the same purpose. But as kind of a more general concept, it's, you know, what's kind of the smallest amount of work we can do to get the most amount of effort out? So there's a bunch of meta models around that concept, like the Pareto principle, et cetera. But internally, we're constantly doing that, asking like, what is the high leverage activity? What should the priority be out of all our other priorities? And that's what opportunity cost comes in, which is, the cost of not doing something. So if you're choosing something, it means you're not doing something else, which is the cost of doing that. And they play against each other because opportunity cost is how to think about leverage, right? It's when you think about what priority you're gonna do and you're thinking about what the opportunity cost is. So that's probably the second one, set four. So I'm gonna go keep going. Yeah, <laughs> go for coming.
1: it. <laughs> If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, just visit thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes, and depending on the membership that you purchase, you can even have access to the transcripts. So just go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click Membership at the top. Also, if you really enjoyed the music, you should check out Danheim. That's D-A-N-H-E-I-M. Mike, at Danheim, gave me permission to use the music for the podcast, and so a huge thanks to Danheim, and with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.